Hello, everyone. I'm Paige Smith with After School, a podcast project from Simon Fraser University's Faculty of Communication, Art, and Technology. After School showcases FCAT alumni in traditional and unconventional career paths across communications, interactive art and technology, contemporary arts, publishing, and digital media. We would like to respectfully acknowledge the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, Katsi, Coquitlam, Kakat, Kwantlen, Semiama, and Tawasin peoples whose unceded traditional territories our three campuses reside. In today's episode of After School, SFU publishing student Miranda Winters Sale sits down with Jesse Finkelstein, an SFU Masters of Publishing alum and the co founder of Page Two Books. They discuss how the master's program helped jumpstart Jessie's career in publishing, the challenges she faced starting her own company, and some of the most exciting projects she's been able to work on. Join them as they converse about the importance of networking, the Pokemon Go phenomenon, and plotting to take down Amazon. I hope you enjoy. My name is Miranda Wintersale, and I am a current student in SFU's Masters of Publishing program. And today I am joined by Jesse Finkelstein, co-founder of Page Two Books. Jesse is an alumni of the Masters of Publishing program at SFU, and prior to co-founding Page Two, she held several management roles at publishing houses, including that of the COO of DNM Publishers and associate publisher at Raincoast Books. She's currently a professor of publishing at the university and serves on the board of Creative BC, an organization devoted to supporting growth of cultural industries. She has lots of great advice for new students looking to come into the master's program, as well as grads who are looking to get their first jobs in the industry. So let's get into it. So I'll just start off with the first question then. So one thing that I've really found with publishing is that people who aren't in publishing have no idea what it means. So when I tell people that I'm in school for publishing, they immediately think I'm like in for creative writing or something like that. And I was really wondering if when you went into publishing originally, you actually had like an idea of what you were doing. Because when I started, I thought I was going to like learn how to write book jacket covers and stuff. I really only came into publishing because I liked books and that's all I knew. I'd say it was exactly the same for me. I, I just knew that I loved books and I was really interested in working with authors. But you're right. I think that the industry is full of mystery and it's it it all happens behind closed doors and it's hard to understand what goes on within it so it was a process of I guess education and demystification for me and that's certainly something we try to do for our authors when when we're working with them to demystify the industry as much as possible yeah I definitely feel like I was lucky enough I did an undergraduate in publishing so coming into SFU I knew what to expect but I feel like a lot of my classmates who did stuff like marketing or English literature and stuff like that really didn't know what they were walking into when they started in the master's program. That is interesting I had done an undergraduate degree in English literature but then once I learned about the program at SFU I knew that I needed to gain some industry experience in order to get into the program and so I spent a year working in publishing. So I didn't assume that I knew a lot, but I was starting from a place where I had some insight. And fortunately, those companies, and and one of them in particular, really the people who run the company really took it upon themselves to try to help educate me. So I was really fortunate that by the time I got into the industry, I feel I maybe had sort of a microcosmic education in so that I could understand and have some context for what we learned about in the master's program. 
I find that nowadays it's really hard to get a job in publishing if you don't have any background experience. I think it was hard then too. I think I was very lucky. I put out a lot of different feelers and I cobbled together a number of things. So I did first an unpaid internship for a short time. Then I worked part-time in a few different places. And I did some retail jobs while I worked part-time in publishing. And so that was certainly the case 25 years ago. I don't know if it's changed much. It really doesn't sound like it because that's really similar to what I've done. I think everyone who started in my program really came in with like a publishing dream. So I was wondering if when you started kind of going into publishing, did you kind of have that big dream? Like that one thing that you were like, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm here for. No, I think I just had a big love. I loved books and I didn't come in with a lot of preconceived notions. I was really interested in the process and I had, I came to visit SFU. I met with the people who ran the program and felt really, really well taken care of. And, you know, really, they they really took the time to help expressed to me what it would feel like. I had reached out to a few different programs elsewhere and didn't have that experience at all. So the main reason I wanted to go to SFU and do the master publishing program was actually because I had, I felt that I, that the people who are running it really gave me excellent visibility into what I should expect. And that made all the difference for me. So no, I think it, I think that I, I felt a lot of trust in the fact that I would be guided and in, in, in some interesting directions that I could explore. And I also don't think that I had preconceived notions about where my particular set of skills or talents really lay at the time. You know, I, I knew that I was very young, very junior, and that it would take me some time to figure out what were my strengths and what I could bring to bear. And as it turns out, I ended up being kind of a generalist in a way. And I think that that served me well when I went to, to co launch my own company, that general expertise has been really helpful in a lot of different ways. It actually leads into my next question. So that's awesome. Um, I really think one of the reasons that John connected us is because when I told him sort of what I was looking for, for an alumni, I wanted someone who really represented a lot of different aspects of the industry, because this is meant to sort of educate people who are coming into the program on what sort of things they can expect and what they might be able to do after graduation with the degree here. So I wanted someone who sort of had a more general expertise because, you know, you can get an editor, but then they're only going to really know how to tell you about editing. And there's just so much to the publishing industry. So I really wanted to ask, like, how did you cultivate that diverse skill set that you really had? When I came into my internship and then my first job after the master's program, I went to work at Raincoast here in Vancouver. And I made a point of trying to stay open to different opportunities, knowing that I'd identified Raincoast as one of the places I wanted to work. But I tried to stay pretty open so that, well, first, because my I was open to many different options, but also so that I could position myself in such a way that I could be very useful. So if there were some specific needs they had for projects that summer when I was wanted to do the internship, I could respond to whatever the needs were. But at the same time, I also felt it was important that I was able to express certain aspects of my interest and, and maybe some things that I would be well positioned to do. And foreign rights and subsidiary rights was that was one one aspect of specific interest that I thought I would be well suited to uh, because I grew up bilingual 
and uh, speaking French and English. And I had by then learned a few other languages. And I thought, well, that I'm really interested, deeply interested in how books make their way into the world in other markets and in other formats. So I thought if I could just put that interest on the table and see if I could develop and cultivate that on the ground at the company I was working for, uh, it would be really neat to see where that would go. And sure enough, I was really fortunate that I was able over time to build out those opportunities. It took time. I mean, I spent a couple of years as an assistant to the president of the company and assistant as well, simultaneously to the entire publishing department. So I did a lot of administrative work and yet I got to know everyone in the company and I had some really amazing insight into how things ran. Little by little, as I kept kind of expressing that particular interest, it turned into an opportunity where I was given the chance to to explore and to work in the foreign rights area. And then that took me to other places within the company as well. It was kind of setting up that mix of positioning, positioning myself as someone who had certain interests and skills and also staying open at the same time. And that was genuine. I mean, it sounds very strategic, but it was also just very genuine that that's how I felt and what, what I felt that I could put forward at the time. But it's certainly something that we have looked for, that I've looked for in my own hiring practices over the years in publishing. When someone comes and is too open-ended, it's really hard to know how to position them within the context of your company and what's going on at the time. And yet, if they are completely narrow cast, then it's just a matter of, well, we either have room for that or we don't. So it can be tricky. I kind of want to move into talking about how you actually started page two, because starting new companies and all that kind of thing that a lot of people are going to have to learn with how much innovation and change is happening in the industry right now. I feel like the jobs that are available for us right now might be completely different from the jobs that are available from graduates coming in a year or even two years. So I really just wanted to ask what led you into deciding to start page two. The biggest factor is my business partner, Trina White, who also did the Master of Publishing program. So we did it several years apart, so we didn't know each other at the time. But we met when we both worked at DNM Publishers together, and we developed an instant rapport and an instant professional just alignment and, and admiration for one another. And Trina has always had an entrepreneurial bent and spirit. She had a vision for building something on her own. I felt very differently. I really actually enjoy working for other people if they're people I care about and respect. But for me, it was both because I met a business partner who I could almost basically be sort of buoyed by her entrepreneurial spirit and have faith in that while you know, bringing my own skill set to the mix and my own ability to, you know, I had a lot of confidence in our ability together to, to do what we wanted to do. And so there was that complementarity, I think, that really suited us, collaboration among a group of like-minded people. I really believe in that very much. And page two was also born of necessity, we felt, because after working in the publishing industry, for about 15 years, Trina and I both had done it for about 15 years at that point, we felt that we had seen a lot. And we felt that there were parts of the industry 
that weren't really well set up for the kinds of authors we were really interested in working with. It's not so much about the books that we like to do. You know, page two publishes nonfiction. I love to read fiction. It's not that I didn't want to work on those books, but in, in thinking about it as a business and something that we could do, we thought, like any entrepreneur, you think about what are the problems you're trying to solve for the people you want to solve them for. And it was very much about thinking about people who are publishing books as an expression or an extension of what they're doing in the world day to day. And not professional writers necessarily. Actually, our, our company is really set up to support people who are leaders and innovators in their fields, and we can help them create excellent books. So that was the other piece. We were really interested in working with thought leaders, entrepreneurs, subject matter experts, and people who are just standing out in their areas because of what they were doing. And there weren't many companies that were doing it in a way that we felt was really optimized for people of that particular profile and mindset. So I, and partly I think because I knew contracts, publishing contracts, inside and out. And I'd actually written my master's project report, my master's thesis on the author contract. I'm such a big nerd, very nerdy topic if, if you want to look at it that way. But it was, I did it because I was really interested in the idea of intellectual property and the the idea that an author is, is licensing their rights to a publisher. I found it pretty audacious how sweeping those contracts were in terms of the, the publisher's assumption of those rights. And also in the English language market, because it's different in, in other languages and parts of the world, but in the English language market, in publishing, often those rights are being licensed for the full term of copyright. So that just, to me, that always felt really so significant and potentially disempowering to an author who might want to have more agency in both how the book is published and also when and how they can do with their rights and with the intellectual property that they have or what they can't. And I guess as rights director, I had often been in a position of having to say no to really interesting entrepreneurial authors who wanted to do stuff. Like I, I've been in publishing right through the digital transformation where people were building apps and they wanted to develop digital versions of their work. And sometimes, you know, publishers were afraid that they were going to lose control of the property if the work went digital before we really knew what that might mean, at least at the time. And so as a result, I just found it very constraining to have to say no to an author about their own work, if you will. So when we were thinking about page two and its model, we thought it would be really nice to create a company that wouldn't foundationally work as a licensing model. It would actually work in a service model. And that was the, the spirit and intention behind page two. Let's create a company where we can do the best possible work that we can for authors of a certain profile and mindset, and let's build the model around that principle of empowering and enabling the authors with as much agency and power in the process as they can have. And that's why we created our company in a service-based model so that we're able to do the work that we do for them, but without licensing their rights. We, we really created page two in the way that we did because we couldn't see very much of that kind of publishing going on elsewhere. And out of necessity, too, because there weren't many places 
we could work. At the time, it wasn't very common to do remote working. We were based here in Vancouver, and neither of us would have had the opportunity to move at that time. So that was also part of the necessity. We thought, well, we were either going to get out of publishing and do something altogether different, or if we we're going to stay in publishing, we would build something in a way that where we'd have to do it from scratch. Yeah, I definitely feel like being on the West Coast, you sort of have to make some of your own opportunities here because everything in the industry really is situated on that publisher's row in Toronto. So I would I would extrapolate too and say that I think that's true of publishing in Canada as well. We have to, you know, being right next to the US, we have to be scrappy and, and creative and opportunistic as well relative to what happens on the other side of the border. Absolutely. Especially when even most of our major publishers now are American run companies. So absolutely. I find that even though page two has been around for a little while, it still is pretty unique in its running model. Like we still really see that the publishing industry is like very set in tradition and you see lots of people trying to change that right now, but it's very slow going in Canada, I think. It's hard to change. It's hard to make change. And it's also, it's just, expensive, you know, practically speaking, it's hard to build a new business of any kind, but especially one where you're not likely to, you know, it'd be very hard to secure funding to to do the work that you want to do. So it's definitely not an easy route to take. Yeah. And that actually um, brings me to another question of like, what were those early years of page two like while you guys were still really trying to sort of make that name for yourself? Well, the company we had worked for when where we met had gone through a bankruptcy process and that was really devastating both for the, those of us working in it and also for the authors and for the industry as a whole and so coming out of that we were really to be honest we were really ground down so it was hard to find that energy and sense of optimism under those circumstances on the other hand we also in a weird way we didn't we had nothing to lose so we had to you know, overnight, basically, we didn't have jobs anymore. It wasn't like a choice where we had to step away from a steady paycheck. And I just say that to say sometimes it's nice to talk about big dreams and goals and vision. And, and we had all of that, but we also basically had to say, well, initially, our bar for revenue was relatively low because we, we were starting, truly starting from nothing. And there's a weird form of liberation, I find, when that happens. And we were able to say, okay, well, then let we can start at this place that we're at right now. We don't, we don't have any overnight expectations to be able to, to be profitable instantly. But we didn't have a very long runway either. So we took a really practical approach. And the way we looked at it was, what are the skills that we can market right away? And what can we do right away to start earning a base level income. And the, the first thing while we were building the company was editorial, because Trina has a background in editing. As I said, I, as a generalist, I didn't have a lot of immediately saleable skills. But with Trina's editorial background, we were able to say, so we're, we're this new kind of company, here's who we are, here's what we're trying to do. And by the way, we can edit your manuscript right away, if you need editing services. And so that gave us one way to start generating income immediately as we built the rest. And we also had a lot of amazing colleagues in the industry and a lot of people who supported us. So our current creative director, Peter Cocking, for instance, we had worked with him 
at DNM as well. And he was supportive from the beginning and now he is with us full time and just a, a core, you know, has been for many years now as a core member of our team. And he just, by bringing people like that into the mix from day one, we were really, we felt that we were in really good company and had a lot of support within the industry. So that was great to be able to draw on the colleagues we had met along the way and the networks that we had developed in publishing over the years. Yeah, I think networking is almost one of the most important things really in this industry. Like through my time in the program, we've had so many amazing opportunities to have speakers come in. And we had the entire week where we just had different Zoom calls with different people in the publishing industry. And there's been lots of, you know, extracurricular activities to like go to. And I think bringing this back to new students and people who are probably going to be listening to this podcast, I think that's one thing to really stress is that like any networking opportunity, no matter how small could like turn into something huge. I've seen it with my colleagues and my peers who are actually getting internships because they you know, did a 15 minute one-on-one meeting with someone from Penguin Random House during that week where we had people in and that turned into an internship opportunity for them. So any, anything with networking really is how to succeed in this business, I think. I couldn't agree with you more. The person who now is our director of operations came in as an intern, a summer intern. And one of the reasons we decided we wanted her to be our intern was because I had met her when I came in to lecture and she asked a really great question and made a connection. And so when she came back and applied, fortunately that summer too, we had some room and we had some budget. When she came back to apply, even though the particular thing that she wanted to do at the time wasn't necessarily exactly what we needed, I was really interested in her. And that was precisely because she had made that connection with me. And it was authentic. You know, the the word networking can sound really inauthentic to some people, but it's all about how you look at it. And to me, it's about just building connection. That was a genuine connection that we built that now has turned into a very long-term, incredible, game-changing relationship for our company. So I agree with you. I think those conversations are always worthwhile big and small. I think that this is program really does that well, like really try to get as many publishing professionals from as many different industries as they really can. And I only have the experience from my year where we were sort of weirdly half remote, half in person, but even with us, we still managed to get a lot of those good connections. And I can only imagine like incoming students next year are going to have even better experiences because they'll probably get to meet people in person a lot more than we did. You know, it's so interesting to me to think about the remote connections, because while I agree, you can't really replace the intimacy of an in-person connection. But on the other hand, the exposure you might have to people that you wouldn't otherwise have if it had to all be in person is quite different. So when I did, you know, there was no Zoom back in my day when I did the program. And so everybody who came through, came through on the ground. And so as a result, we had amazing people come through, but most of them were local and had to be so. And I just think it would really open things up to, to be able to just zoom people in from different places. I know I'm sort of stating the obvious, but I can see that that, you know, being able to access people on a hybrid basis would be really ideal. I think that's probably one benefit we've gotten from the pandemic is that I think people are going to be a lot more open 
to doing some remote stuff, both in like just work and with school and all that kind of stuff. So I really think that now that people have kind of seen what's available and what can happen when you do stuff remotely and over Zoom, I think people mm-hmm. will be a lot more open to doing it now. I think so. So I wanted to get a little bit more just kind of hearing like personal stories, just like stuff that kind of stood out in your career. So one question I wanted to know, if was there like a single project that like you really enjoyed working on? Like it sort of just became something where you like, like, you know, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing here. This is great having the time of my life yes. kind of thing. Yes. I have about four of them to share. Okay. I'll try to be, I'll try to be brief, but I think sharing a few will contextualize some of the kind of more extraordinary examples and then some of the examples that are more relevant to the core of what we do at page two. So the one that is most, I think, con- consistent with who we wanted to be and who we've become There's an author named Michael Bungay-Stanier who wrote a book called The Coaching Habit, and he's written several more since then and published with us. But The Coaching Habit was our introduction to Michael, and he really embodied in so many ways the kind of person we set out to serve at page two. So when, when we met him and he was expressing what his needs were, we just thought, oh, we're so well set up to support you. And it re- we had met other people like that as well, but there was something about how robust was his vision and how robust were the services that he needed. And the fact that we had built this company that could really help him take advantage of all of those things really was very gratifying. And he had published previously and, and had published traditionally as well. And he had had a good experience, but when he was ready to publish The Coaching Habit, it just didn't seem like it was a good fit for his traditional publisher. So he had a really keen sense of what it was that he wanted out of an experience like the one that we wanted to provide. So we think often of Michael as being the kind of author who really reflected back to us who who we were and who we were aspiring to be at that time. And we've from there really grown up grown up since then in a way that allowed us to continue trying to grow to fit the needs, to meet the needs of authors of his ambition and his vision. So that's one example of, I think, someone who really set the tone for us and a a project that was really exciting to work on. And it continues to be exciting to work with Michael. A really kind of unique and very extraordinary experience was Trina and I had always said that we felt that we should really, in order to fully empathize with what our authors were experiencing, we should do a project of our own. So we should make a book at page two that we were investing in and in every way, literally, metaphorically. And we also wanted to experiment at the time, we wanted to experiment with speed. So we were interested, not for the sake of speed, but for strategic reasons. So at the time, the Pokemon Go phenomenon was exploding. And we ended up doing an Insta book around the phenomenon that we just, we we were sort of gambling and saying we had been looking for that kind of opportunity to say, what if we could just capitalize on something that seemed to be happening and, and move in our model, we could move so quickly with the kind of agility that we had, we could take advantage of it. So we did. Now, if you know the Pokemon Go phenomenon, you, you would know that, that it basically extinguished itself as quickly as it rose. It was like one summer of explosion. Yep. 
And then it disappeared by the time the fall rolled around. Now we had managed our financial risk to the extent that it was still a really big investment for us at the time. We didn't have much capital to invest in the project, but we hired a writer, we ran it in-house as lean as we could. We got global distribution and we were we turned a small profit despite the fact that it didn't take off. But we thought, well, if it turned into the next Minecraft, then it could it could have been a really amazing entrepreneurial endeavor from a profitability standpoint too. So it wasn't that, but it actually opened up some distribution channels for us that we ended up tapping into for future work. We met an amazing mentor who mentored us through that process from an entrepreneurial standpoint and really helped us push our boundaries. And I'll speak for myself here more than Trina, because I think she's made of tougher stuff than me sometimes. But I think my boundaries and my appetite for risk was really pushed in that experiment. So it gave us a bit more confidence. I thought, well, if we can do that, we can do a lot of other things. So that was an unusual, but really, but really resonant experience. Another one was we did a project in New Orleans that was basically reflecting a set of philanthropic initiatives. And I had the opportunity to go and see that city and learn about the people. We had hired a writer and then Peter, our creative director, came down and we met a photographer on the ground. And it was one of the only times I've sort of been part of making a book on the ground. I was there for the photo shoots. I was there meeting the people who ultimately would be featured in the book. So it was kind of almost experiencing the project as it was coming together and being made. And that was extraordinary. And the last example that comes to mind, it's actually there are some amazing forthcoming books that we're going to publish that I'm, I'm really excited about. One of the things that I found the most thrilling about being at this point in our process is that we can start to really very carefully hone and curate our list. And when we decided that business and leadership would be one of the areas of focus for us at page two, we knew that that area of publishing is very heavily dominated by men and that there are not nearly as many women authors or authors of any kind of diverse profile writing in that field. So there are some really incredible, I mean, we've published incredible people. There are some really incredible authors who are going to be publishing in that category who are writing on amazing subjects and also are more representative of that really diverse, diverse profiles and backgrounds and incredible, you know, sort of multifaceted sets of expertise that we'll see through the next few years. And uh, I feel really proud of our ability to actively cultivate that and to be a force for change. Um, so those are some examples. Actually, I have one more. Okay. One more. Yeah, let's hear it. Because this one is, a, is reflective, I think, of the, it was the word multifaceted that made me think of it. It's many of our authors see publishing and they take a very multifaceted approach to publishing and we try to meet them there and help support them in all of what they do. So we have worked with an amazing author named Bob Joseph now for for many years. Bob runs a company called Indigenous Corporate Training and he he wanted a publication that would support the work that he and, and his team do in-house to support helping to teach non-Indigenous organizations and, and individuals how to work more effectively with Indigenous organizations and people. And so we created a book that was very much designed to support the, the training and the work that he does. But being a really insightful, data-driven person, 
he noticed that a blog post that he wrote called 21 Things You May Not Know About the Indian Act took off. It really became a, a very, very important part of the conversation around the Indian Act in Canada, part of the national conversation. And he noticed that it, there was huge interest in that particular post and wanted to build a book around it. So we, we helped him create that book and then another follow-up book that 21 Things You May Not Know But the Indian Act became the first one. And then uh, Indigenous Relations, Making Reconciliation a Reality. And those books have become national bestsellers many times over and also have really made a massive impact on the dialogue. In, in particular, the way that 21 Things was able to make accessible to the average reader the effect of some very complex history and legacy of this legislation of the Indian Act. He was able to make it so accessible such that I think it's broken down a lot of barriers. And that's the power of books as we know it. And that's the power of an author of the mindset of Bob. So I wanted to share that example too, as a real shining light on what we do and uh, what we're fortunate, who we're fortunate enough to work with. I think those stories show a lot of the uniqueness of page two's model as well. Like, for example, like that Pokemon Go story you told, most publishers, they won't publish something that's based on a trend because you don't know how long these trends are going to be around. Like we've been told in our in our classes, if you're ever an acquiring editor and someone writes a book about an event that happened yesterday, it's not going to get published for two years and no one's going to care anymore. So <laughs> it's really interesting True. to see how your model kind of let you do that and how it didn't become a bestseller or anything because Pokemon Go did fizzle out, but it was still able to be a profitable book. And I think that's just really interesting. And I think that's something we need more in the publishing industry because there are things that might fizzle out, but people are still going to want to read about them at the time. And it's it's hard to get get that kind of stuff at the time. Well, we had some really good models for doing that. It definitely wasn't something that came from nowhere. You know, when, when we worked at DNM, I remember working on several books under the Greystone imprint where they were very responsive, for example, in creating a book that was specific, let's say, to, you know, a hockey series that was, was indelibly in people's minds or to, you know, the, the floods that happened in and around Calgary at the time. So it's very, very hard to pull off, but it's that sense of risk and reward. And it, I can't say that it's something that publishers can easily or comfortably do all the time. And it's, we, we're not usually working with other people who want to work with that level of go-to-market speed. However, it's something that we were really keen to push ourselves and to try to push ourselves into an extreme sort of situation so that we could ha just experiment. We wanted to we really support that level of experimentation where possible. And we thought, well, we better do it too if we're going to help coach our authors into it as well. But it's hard to do. There are no easy answers, but once in a while, it's um, if you can swing it, it's, it's really worth trying. And I'm sure like the skills that you learned from that can still be applied even in normal situations where you're not pushing a book that fast. So it's just a good learning exactly. experience. <laughs> It was absolutely, it was a really important moment in our growth, I think, as a company and as a team. So I know that you're on a time crunch, so I'm just going to bring it to the last couple of questions where I just wanted to actually address the people who are going to be listening to this podcast, the incoming students to SFU, the 
new grads that are going to be going out into the industry. But do you think there's like one piece of advice you have sort of that everyone who's trying to put their foot in the door of the industry should know that they may not know? I think you called it earlier in our conversation where you were talking about networking and making connections with people. I think the more you can do that in a meaningful way, the better. I'll say too, when you're interviewing, this is a small thing, but it's quite meaningful. Doing meaningful, tailored follow-up really makes a difference too. I've noticed in our hiring at page two, some of the people who not only interviewed really well, but who sent some just simple, but responsive and meaningful and kind follow-up really made an impression. And that gave us the opportunity to see another facet of who it was we were talking to and who we were meeting with. So those are just, just in thinking about the actual job search or looking for internships or things like that, those are two things that bring immediately to mind. And I would just say too, that while there's not, I, I don't have a lot of easy answers for the difficult industry to get into. It's a difficult industry to work in. But I think a lot of industries are challenged right now. So I would just say to the greatest extent possible, try not to be too daunted by all of the perceived challenges and dig into what, you know, put, put your passion to work and just, just give it a try. Because, you know, at the time, like I said, when I was first starting out in publishing, I felt the weight of those challenges. And like anyone else, I had to earn a paycheck and it was definitely daunting and overwhelming. And I remember some people at the time, I had moved from Montreal to Vancouver. And I remember people saying, well, you have to go to Toronto for your internship because that's the only place where there really is meaningful work. And I had felt such a sense of upheaval already moving. I mean, I was, I was happy for the opportunity, but it was, it was a challenge for personal reasons and it was expensive. And I thought, oh, I have to move back across the country because people are saying these generalities. They're just giving me this general sense, this general sense of the landscape. Of course, it was true that there were more opportunities in Toronto or New York for that matter. But at the time, I just thought, I, I want to see what I can do here. So if you have a real, you know, a feeling that you want to work in a certain environment, in a certain area, I would say just keep, you know, keep your hopes up and keep, uh, keep trying because it's, you can, we can get daunted by anything. And I think it's always worth, it's, it's worth a try. And if it doesn't work out in the short term right away, but you can find something that's engaging in the meantime and can keep digging into it, then, then by all means, I would also advise that you do. Awesome. That's great advice. And I think yeah, we're in the same position, I think, as you were back then, too, because I, I moved from Toronto to here and I don't want to move back. So I've been yeah. looking for opportunities around here. So it's the exact same upheaval feeling that you felt back mm-hmm. then. It's really interesting to yeah. see how nothing has really changed that much in the industry, even though it has. You see all these new yeah. technologies, you see all these new ways to read popping up but really at the core of it the publishing industry is still like very much the same and I think that's really interesting I think so I think what really had shifted by the time I got into publishing was the advent of big box retailing I think the digital shift has been very significant but it's not everything and I think it's really the shift the move away from a healthier ecosystem of independent bookstores to the advent of big box retailing and that includes 
the digital, you know, the, the digital landscape now as well, like Amazon, that's really what's changed the game more than anything else from my perspective. And so that's been consistent for me my whole career. I think if I had worked in publishing for a long time before that shift happened, it would have been even more radically different. Absolutely. And it's nice to yeah. see that we see more independent publishers starting to pop up as the sort of shop local thing is sort mm-hmm. of trying to make its way back into this industry. So hopefully we'll see a shift back to how it was before and maybe, maybe we'll see what we can do about Amazon. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, let me know if you figure that one out. I think I think that's going to be like the whole country as a whole, all the publishing people, we need to just sort of put our minds to that one. Yeah, maybe the world. Awesome. So I don't want to take up more of your time because I know that you said you were busy. I want to thank you so much for doing this interview. Thanks, Miranda. Well, good luck with everything. And and thanks so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. After School is a podcast project from Simon Fraser University's Faculty of Communication, Art, and Technology. This has been our conversation with Jesse Finkelstein, hosted by Miranda Winters Sale. The After School podcast is created by Tessa Arsenault, Emma Keeler Duga, Stacey Coplin, myself, Paige Smith, and each of our student hosts. You can also learn more about publishing at SFU at publishing.sfu.ca and follow them on Facebook and Instagram at SFU Publishing. Next time on After School, we'll be hosting a conversation with Nick Doring, a software engineer with experience in product design and user experience who graduated from SFU School of Interactive Art and Design. Make sure you subscribe to After School on your podcasting app of choice so you don't miss this great conversation. See you next time.